All right, good evening, everyone. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you guys this evening. My name is Justin Wilson, for those that I don't know in the room. Um, I'm not typically the one uh, who is preaching up here, but it's a gift and an honor um, to get to be um, up here today. And so I always like to give a roadmap um, of where we're going before I jump into the text, partially for you guys um, and also very much for myself to make sure I have my bearings on what I'm talking about and where I'm going um, before I just dive into the text. I feel like I often have a tendency um, to start with so much information that it often feels like a, co- a class, a college lecture, rather than a church sermon. And that's going to be the same tonight. Um, my goal is to give you some context and some information of the psalm, um, a roadmap of how I'm going to attempt to break it down, and then hopefully work through all the text in an efficient manner. Um, so we'll see how that goes. But in this psalm, Psalm 113, we see the beginning of what is known as the Egyptian Hallel. And Hallel, which is the root of the word Hallelujah, indicating that these are a grouping of praise, psalms of praise. Psalms 113 through Psalms 118 were used in Jewish liturgy, often during the week of the celebration of Passover. Um, this Egyptian Hallel would often use Psalms 113 and 114 before the Passover meal, and then 115 through 118 after the meal. Um, what is unique to Psalm 113 is that it has no didactic conclusion, which in literature, the didactic conclusion is what most people would consider the moral of the story, um, the theme, the knowledge, or the lesson that can be gained from the specific text. This psalm ends with how it begins. It says, praise the Lord. It is a call to praise. It is a call to worship. It is a call to recognize the character of God and exalt him for his great character. The Hebrew translation of this word praise is literally an enthusiastic and a spontaneous praise. It is said to be a glowing report of praise. It's not a praise to God because it's it's what we ought to do. It's not just merely saying praise God. It is an enthusiastic praise to God. The beauty about the psalm is it seems very simple and straightforward in what it says. And it is simple and straightforward. There are some minor contextual matters and cross-references that we'll get to dive into but it's a very straightforward psalm of praise. We can see it broken up into two main sections. However, section two will have two subsections. And when looking at the text, it might seem a little overkill to have two sections and have one divided into two separate sections, Um, but it helps with the organization of the structure of the psalm. So section one is verses one through three. And this verses one through three is the call to praise. Um, And the rest of the psalm, verses 4 through 9, is the second section, and that is what we are called to praise. Uh, In this first subsection, in uh, the second section, we are in verses 4 and 5, and we are called to praise God for His excellency in verses 4 and 5. And then the rest of it, verses 6 through 9, we are called to praise God for His grace. So two sections, the call to praise, and then what we are called to praise God for. And we see six times in these nine verses in this short psalm to praise the name of the Lord or that the name of the Lord is to be praised or to be blessed. And what is it about his name? It's the excellency and the grace that are found in the Lord, his sovereignty and his salvation, his greatness and his mercy. This praise of the name of the Lord is specifically calling on the covenantal name of Yahweh, this Lord is the covenantal name God established with the Israelites. This name is a central aspect of the covenant. Yahweh, the one who so confidently assured his people, I am that I am. 
We call upon the name of this God who is worthy of our praise for so many reasons. But to rightly praise God, we must know what we are praising and we must know who we are praising. The psalmist makes it a point to reiterate that we are not just to praise the Lord, but we are to praise the name of the Lord, indicating that we must know what we are worshiping. We must know who we are worshiping. We can't get by with uttering meaningless, empty prayers. We can't get by with singing worship songs that don't praise God rightly. We can't get by with reading scripture and not knowing what it actually says. And we definitely can't get by without reading scripture at all. So knowledge of who God is, is vital to our worship of him. And there are three important aspects that we can take away from considering the knowledge of God. This first aspect is that the knowledge of God should inform our praise. The second aspect is that the knowledge of God should be sought out in an attitude of worship, not out of intellectual curiosity. Intellectual curiosity will eventually run us dry if there is not an attitude of worship that fuels it. And the third is the knowledge of God should inspire us to praise. So aspect one is the knowledge of God should inform our praise. Number two is the knowledge of God should be sought out in an attitude of worship first, not first out of intellectual curiosity. And the third is the knowledge of God should inspire us to praise. When we learn something new about God that we didn't know before, when we study a scripture passage deeply for the first time, when we learn of anything of God's character, it should inspire us to praise. If our worship of God remains at the head level, we will only be able to go so far as Christians. Worship of God must be done at the heart level, out of the love of what we know of God. And so out of the love for what we know and out of the love for what we don't yet know, we can be assured that Scripture tells us God will continue to reveal himself for the rest of eternity. And we will never fully know God. So let us praise him out of abundance of love for what we do know of him and out of abundance of love that we know there's so much more to learn about God that he will continue to reveal for the rest of eternity. Now let's look at verse 1, the beginning of our call to praise. And just so we can be assured that it is a call to praise, the psalmist tells us three times in this first verse, just to make sure we are all in the same praise, that it is time to praise the Lord. So verse 1 says, Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. We see not only the word praise three times, but we also see the Lord three times. And I am convinced that the use of this is intentional. It was a common tradition for people to address the Lord three times as an allusion to the Trinity. And this psalm, not only in the first verse, but continually throughout it, gives great evidence to suggest the great imagery and the work of Christ being exemplified through the writing of this praise. We are praising the name of God, the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All three equally worthy of our praise, even before Christ has set foot on earth, and before the Holy Spirit has been breathed out among the people. Addressing the covenantal name of Yahweh three times in the first verse, assuring our praise to be of the triune God, the Godhead three in one. And the servants of the Lord is specific wording as well, because the Israelites have been brought out of their captivity. The Israelites have been freed from their bondage in Egypt. They are no longer slaves to Pharaoh. They are now servants of Yahweh. There are some scholars who make the argument that these servants are specifically the Levites, the priests, but it is commonly accepted across the board that servants of the Lord in this psalm is all his people, all those who take part in worshiping God. And his people, through knowing him, will take much part in praising him. If their affections are truly set on a love for the Lord, they will incite others to do the same. They will want everyone that they come into contact with to praise the God of excellency and to praise the God 
of grace, the God of greatness and of goodness, the God of sovereignty and of loving care. And if you know God and love him, there should be a desire to make those that you know and love, and even those that you don't know and love, praise the name of God. We can find pleasure in praising God as his servants. And if it's our great pleasure to get to do so, we shall hope and pray that everyone shall get to rejoice in that same great pleasure that God offers specifically to his people. It is our job as believers to beg and to plead for wayward people to come to know the truth of our God. If we believe he is truly worthy of our praise, we should have an urgency that others should do the same. Continuing on in verse 2, it says, Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And we see the beginning of this verse with blessed be the name of the Lord. And if you recall a month or so ago in Zechariah's prophecy that we saw in Luke chapter 1, that is how Zechariah begins his praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. This incitement of praise is very common throughout Scripture, calling blessing upon the name of God, the God who is sovereign over all, who pours out blessing over his people. He is worthy of our praise, and he is worthy of our blessing his name. I think the meat of this verse is in the line that follows. It says, from this time forth and forevermore. This indication that now, through the end of eternity, we shall bless the name of the Lord. This is a meaningful now. It is not simply an idea that we should start praising God. It is a command that we should praise his name now, in this moment, and continually give him praise forevermore. If you have never called on the name of the Lord to be praised, there's no better time to start than right now. As the old cliche goes, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is right now. And think of how much more true that is for life in the faith. The best time to start being a true follower of Christ would have been 20 years ago, but the second best time to start is right now. And how much more fruitful praising the Lord is than merely planting a tree. It is the desire of all of us who are Christ followers to continue to grow and to be shaped by the gospel and to grow in maturity and faith. And it would be nice to already have 20 years of spiritual growth and sanctification under your belt. However, most likely for a young church, chances are that most of you have been walking with the Lord for a lot less than 20 years. And my encouragement to you is to press on. Continue to give praise to the Lord daily. Continue to grow in your knowledge of Him, His ways, His character. We see in the psalm in particular to praise God for His excellency and to praise God for His grace. And there's so much to praise God for that these two aspects of His character and His grace, or of His character, are a great place to start His excellency and His grace. And you can meditate and praise God for these two specific characteristics for a long, long time. So, believers, press on, continue to fight the good fight, grow in spiritual maturity, continue to offer your life as a daily sacrifice to the Lord. That is the encouragement believers can get from this verse. Now, for those who have yet to truly praise and worship God, there's no better time than right now to begin your journey of faith. Those who have never fully surrendered to God, if you've never seen the gift of the gospel for what it is, God taking on the very likeness of man to live a perfect life, obeying the law perfectly, doing something that no man has ever been able to do, and suffering a criminal's death, bearing the sins of all humanity, willfully accepting the wrath of God, being poured out through the cross, only to, as Christ himself predicted, be raised from the grave on the third day, showing the very power of God to conquer the grave, slaying death once and for all. Christ has made salvation available to all people because of the excellency of God and by his grace. He has freely offered this gift of eternal life. So if you've never professed faith before, but you believe this gospel to be true, I encourage you to repent of your sins. Repent 
of your brokenness and profess faith in Christ and offer him praise from this time forth and forevermore. It is worth it. Christ purchased people at great price. And if you're not a blood-bought believer, I long for and our church longs for you to be washed by the blood of Christ, to be redeemed by his power and by his grace. And this praising the Lord forevermore indicates an endless duration of our praise. Charles Spurgeon says, forever and more than forever, if more can be, let him be magnified. We shall never cease to give praise to God. We are prone to forget, prone to place things before him, prone to push him to the side knowing he will always be there. But from this time forth and forevermore, we shall give our best ever to never cease to give God praise, never cease to speak the truth of who God is and praise him according to what his word says of him. Verse 3 says, From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. And continuing on from the call to praise in verses 1 and 2, not only shall we give praise to the Lord starting today and continuing for all eternity, we should also praise him throughout the duration of the day. From sunup to sundown, we shall continually offer praise. This combination of verse 2 and 3 reminds me of a childish memory from youth sports using the phrase all day, every day. I'm almost positive I wore a shirt in middle school in big letters across the chest, just all day, every day. And people would use that phrase, smack-talking teammates, smack-talking friends, um, telling them anytime, anywhere, they're willing to compete and they're very confident in themselves that they will win. Um, And as childish as this reference may be, I think this is what we are called to do by the psalmist, to worship God all day, every day, making our lives a living act of praise in what we do and what we say and how we treat people and how we see God in our everyday lives, and in how we truly praise God in our everyday lives. In the first psalm, it says, On his law he meditates day and night. The blessed man that Psalm 1 is talking about is constantly meditating on God's law. That is a truly beautiful and pure act of praise to God, to revere and to love his word so much that you meditate on it day and night. Reading God's word, praying through it, memorizing it. These are great acts of praise to God that we are encouraged to do by the psalmist daily, not just once a day, but continually praising God throughout our days. All day, every day, we should pursue the Lord. We should seek him in his word, in prayer, in worship, in community, in the beauty of the sunrise, and the beauty of the sunset. We should seek to praise the Lord and to praise him for what we know of him. And truth be told, every sunrise and every sunset over a rebellious, idolatrous, adulterous nation is an act of mercy that is worthy of our praise. In the context of the psalm, Israel continually has failed to remain faithful to God and his law. Yet the Lord has remained faithful to preserving the nation day after day while they blatantly sin in the face of the Lord. We recently went through the book of Hosea and the entire book is a witness to the unfaithfulness of Israel, but the mercy of God's faithfulness to them. And this is still the Lord's mercy that is ever-present today, allowing the sun rise and to set over a world that rejects him, over a nation like America that lives in outright rebellion against God and what his word says. I'm sure all of you know we're in June, um, which is Pride Month for all of America, celebrating and encouraging LGBTQ plus community, their encouragement of homosexuality, transgenderism, and even now polygamy and polyamory, parading around in front of everyone to see the outright sin and rebellion against the word of God. If you all turn to me to Romans chapter 1, verse 18, Romans 1, 18, we will see what the Apostle Paul explicitly states about this sin. Romans 1, 18 says, 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. You skip down to verse 26. It says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. This sexual revolution in our world, in our country, that encourages sex outside of marriage, sex before marriage, sex with the same gender, and now even sex with multiple partners. And many know that it is contrary to the Word of God. Many know and don't care. Many know what Scripture says, but deciding that certain parts of Scripture are irrelevant in today's society. They're outdated to the times that we live in. We need to call it what it is. It is sin. It is unrepentant sin. And what a woeful thing that is. And this is a nation that God daily grants his mercy to. And Pride Month only scratches the surface of all the country's sin against God. The Lord is more than worthy, worthy of our praise for all the grace that he pours out in this world daily. Not just this world, all the grace that he pours out on you daily, on me daily. We can look at Pride Month as Christians and scoff, but we are equally sinful and disobedient to the law, just in different ways. We are equally in need of a Savior to redeem us from our brokenness. Think of the sins that are present in your life right now, sins you've been dealing with for years, sins that are relatively new, but you still find yourself in the midst of time and time again. We must repent daily. We must repent hourly. We must repent each minute. We must repent every time we sin against God. We must, as the Word of God says, pray without ceasing. We must turn away from our sin and turn to God. And we must beg and plead and encourage others to do the same. We must beg those that we see on the streets living in sin, living in rebellion against the word of God. We must beg sinners to repent. We must plead the case of grace and ask people to turn from their sins and turn to God. How gracious is the Lord for having mercy on us. He is more than deserving of our praise. And this third verse perfectly harmonizes with the verse in Malachi chapter 1, verse 11. It says, From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. This language that from the rising of the sun to its setting is a phrase of universal dominion. The Lord in his sovereignty graciously allows his people to walk waywardly when his own sovereignty truly is a universal dominion. And as it is promised in his word that someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The sun rises over the east and sets over the west. This phrase of universal dominion is indicative that from east to west, people everywhere will call upon the name of the Lord. It is not limited to certain nations. His power is everywhere. Where the sun rises to where it sets. When the sun rises to when it sets. People everywhere and at all times should offer praise to God. Now verse 4 begins our second section where we turn to what we are called to praise God for. And in particular the subsection verses 4 and 5 being praising God for his excellency. We are given direction in these verses as to what to give God glory for. Um, we are to praise God for his power, his majesty, his sovereignty, his greatness. 
His Excellency. Verse 4 says, The Lord is high above all nations, and His glory is above the heavens. The Lord is high above all nations. Even though the nations knew it not, the Lord was their ruler. The false gods that so many nations worshipped were no gods before Yahweh. The kings of these nations were puppets in the hands of God. This verse portrays the same theme that we see in the book of Isaiah when the prophet writes, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as dust on the scales. I recently saw David Platt, as well as so some others in the congregation today, saw David Platt personify the imagery of this verse during a talk. And he takes this dropper from a bucket, he gets a little drop out, he slowly watches one drop fall to his hand. He says, Behold, the nations in the hands of our God. And then he takes this old book that had dust on it, and he blows dust onto the scale, and the scale registers as nothing. And he says, the nations before our God. And that is truly what the nations are before our God. Merely a drop in the hand, merely dust on the scales. The mightiest nations are nothing before our God. The Lord is high above all nations. There's no false god or kingship that compares to the majesty and the dominion of our God. The psalmist writes that his glory is even above his own heavens. His greatness is unparalleled greatness. His sovereignty is unmatched. His power is more majestic than any other power. That even to get to the heavens, he must stoop down. He must humble himself to stoop into heaven. His glory is above everything. We will see this more as we get into verse 6 later on in a couple minutes. That we are to, above all things, praise the God who himself is above all things. And continuing on in verse 5, we see this rhetoric begin of who is like the Lord our God. Verse 5 says, who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high? And this common rhetorical question throughout scripture is often posed out of admiration and out of praise, recognizing that God's glory, majesty, and dominion rules over all. He is seated on high, the seat that is above the nations. And not only the nations, he is high above the heavens too, seated, seated on high, Above all, our God is the most elevated, the most exalted, the greatest being. He is worthy of our praise. His excellency should draw our hearts to be in awe of him. His greatness should direct our awe to him. His glory should drive our desire to know more about his glory. This is our God, our God who is above the nations, above the heavens, who is seated on high, calls us to praise him. And as Peter writes, we are to give God all our glory, all our honor, and all our praise. Nothing should interfere or intervene with our praise to God. He is matchless, and our reverence and praise to Him should be matchless in our own lives. There is nothing on this earth or above this earth that can be likened to our God. He can look down and condescend, as we will see in the upcoming verses. But even in that condescension, there is no stooping from His own holiness and His own perfection. The character of God is flawless. It always has been, and it always will be. That flawless character, that perfect holiness, that is what we are to praise God for, that he is excellent. And the next three verses, transferred to the second subsection, um, are called to praise God for his grace, for his loving acts of care, for his goodness. There are three specific acts of grace outlined in these three verses. God's condescension to his creatures, the raising of his creatures, and the miracle of giving a barren woman a home and making her a joyous mother. These three great acts of grace give us, once again, plentiful reason to give God all of our praise, not only because he is an excellent God, because he is gracious 
and merciful. As the verse in Exodus 34, 6 says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This God, this merciful, this gracious God, who is faithful to his people who are constantly unfaithful to him, that is the God whom we are to praise. Verse 6 reads, Who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. And this first line can also be translated from who looks far down to who humbles himself to behold. The dwelling place of the Lord is so highly exalted, he must humble himself to behold the things of the heavens and of the earth. This is God's condescension to his creatures. This condescension by no means diminishes God's greatness. It only makes it all the greater. We see this pure act of grace that it is a good and perfect God to humble himself, to behold the things of heaven, to behold the things of earth. We know that this glory and this majesty are above the things of earth and above the things of heaven. The greatness of God's condescension can be found in him taking the very likeness of man, submitting himself to the law that he established. Christ laid down his glory by taking on flesh, by stooping low to save a barren, fruitless people. Christ, knowing that one day he would conquer death and be exalted to his heavenly seat once again. Such grace and power requires that people everywhere shall praise the Lord. In Charles Spurgeon's commentary in the Psalms, he writes, We have a God who is high above all gods, and yet who is our Father, knowing what we need of before we ask him. Our shepherd who supplies our needs, our guardian who counts the hairs of our heads, our tender and considerate friend who sympathizes in all our griefs. Truly the name of our condescending God should be praised wherever it is known. There's great significance to God's looking far down on the earth. We know of his excellency and his sovereignty from verses 4 and 5. And although he is stooping low, his condescension is surely an act of mercy. God's earthly intervention is more evidence to his sovereign power. That in his sovereignty, he has ordained and allowed things on this earth, both good and bad. And for some to pose the concept that God is exempt from the problem of evil discounts the might of God's power. To say he isn't in control of all things would mean he actually isn't sovereign. And as we know that our God is sovereign, and in his great purposeful sovereignty, he has providentially ordained things, permitted things on this earth. Matthew 5.45 says that God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. All that he ordains and permits is still under his sovereign providential hand. For example, God has permitted the enemy to be the prince of the power of the air. And God knows that the enemy will tempt his people, and he has allowed this to happen. And the true beauty is that even when the enemy is at his best, the most he is is a sanctifying agent for the people of God. Martin Luther is famously quoted saying, He might be the devil, but he's God's devil. That if there were no temptation of sin to conquer, there would be a lot less sanctification going on amongst the people of God. However, God has graciously allowed Satan to be the prince of the power of the air and has providentially worked into God's plan perfectly helping sanctify God's people so they become better Christ followers. God handles matters on this earth. He looks far down on us. He humbles himself to his work here on earth. He is present and gracious enough to be a God that is living and active. That is a God whose great power, whose great mercy is worthy of our praise. Continuing on in verse 7, it says, He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. And who is it? Who is the poor? and the needy that he lifts from the ash sheep who are the poor whom God raises from the dust. The poor, in this case, are any that are not yet the Lord's people. And the needy are those that need the Lord. Sinners have created a heap of loathsomeness in our sinful lives. 
We are all in need of being raised from the ash heap out of the dust. Another translation has the word dunghill in place of ash heap. How great an act of mercy it is that God would condescend from his throne that is above all, all the way to the ash heap, all the way to the dunghill, completely humbling himself for his people. Great are the hands who have lifted us out of the grave, away from the ash heap, and guided us into the loving arms of the Father. You see, because we are sinners, we have dug our own graves. We've been buried by our sin, by our toil, by our vanity, by our pride. And the only thing that can bring us out of the grave is the power of the cross. Through the redemption of Christ, poor fallen men are raised from the dust. And this presents a case for the Lord's imminence, his divine power taking on material presence. God is imminent. He is divine in power, but he takes on this material presence. He is near to his creation. Although he is transcendent, that he is not bound by this world, his glory is above all things. He intervenes in a creation to accomplish a great reversal in the life of the lowliest and the most humble. As Paul writes of Christ in Philippians, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbles himself, of becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Lord is imminent. He has intervened in creation because man was constantly unfaithful. In his great sovereignty, in his great providence, in his great wisdom, he sent Christ to purchase all the sins of humanity and to lift the poor and needy men from the grave. God himself claims to exalt himself. He also claims to humble himself. And this is not an inconsistency of character. It is the combination of his excellency and his grace. One of the commentators I was reading this week puts it, as he is self-existent, he is both the fountain of his own honor and the spring of his own grace. As he is self-existent, so he is both the fountain of his own honor and the spring of his own grace. It is God's condescending goodness that gives us a relationship with Christ. It is God's supreme excellency that has set the standard of the law with an expectation that the law be kept. If the law wasn't kept, there was always expectation of sacrifice. The excellency of his law requires that he be just and his wrath be poured out. And the goodness of his grace has made Christ the sacrificial lamb who, God, who takes away the sins of the world. And God has a wrath. He has a judgment. And it is so, so clear in scripture. And it should be a present recognition of ours. But praise God, because he has made salvation available to his unfaithful people. That all we do is look to Christ on the cross, believe that he bore our burdens, was scorned with our shame, and took on the wrathful punishment that we are deserving of. And God, in his great loving care for his people, has made salvation attainable at much less of a cost than he made his own son pay. That is a God who's worthy of our praise, the God who condescends, who takes on flesh, who is self-existent, not needing to depend on anything but himself. These things we know about God should drive us to praise him for these characteristics we know of him. Verse 8 says, To make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. And this verse is a beautiful completion of what it says in verse 7, that whom God lifts from the dust, from the ash heap, he will place among the princes of his people. And this is another great representation of the character of God, that our God does nothing half effort. Whatever work he begins, he sees it through to completion. So he lifts the people from the ash heap, but he doesn't stop there. Whom he raises from the dust, he places in his kingdom. And these past two verses are a parallel to a text from 1 Samuel chapter 2, this text is known as Hannah's Song, which is a song of praise extremely similar to what we saw of the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1. 
Although Hannah's song of praise and Mary's praise are extremely similar in nature, Hannah's situation could more closely relate to Elizabeth's situation. They are both faithful women who are barren into their old age and then given a child. Part of Hannah's praise, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8, says, He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with the princes and inherit a seat of honor. And this almost word-for-word quote from Hannah's song that is echoed here in this psalm can assure us that this is a work that the Lord has done, that he does, that he will continue to do. It is the nature of God here in the Old Testament, and we know it is the nature of Christ in the New Testament as well. Jesus says that in his kingdom, the last are first and the first are last. In this book that's sweeping the Christian world right now, gentle and lowly, outlines two chief characteristics that Christ exemplifies in the New Testament. Humbling himself, becoming lowly, and exalting the lowly on earth, bringing his people out of the dust, and making the last on earth the first in his kingdom. That is the heart of God. It is the heart of Christ. They are one and the same. There's not a different heart posture of God in the Old Testament versus the New Testament. This verse in Psalm 113 is also seen as Hannah's song. It is the same character that Christ exemplifies in his ministry. God's character doesn't change. He is excellent and he is gracious. He always has been and he always will be. Finishing up in verse 9, he gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Barrenness was a curse in Jewish culture. From the beginning of creation, when God gave women the gift of childbearing, it was thought of that if you weren't able to bear a child, God had cursed you for some reason or another. Knowing that barrenness was a curse, I think there's no coincidence that this verse was placed last. This is the climax of God's mercy on his people. Coincidentally enough, the psalmist that quotes Hannah's praise, the verses prior to verse 9, Hannah is a prime candidate for God's mercy being shown through her life, that God provided her with a child after years of barrenness. Hannah, Sarah, the wife of Abraham, Jacob's wife Rachel, the wife of Manoah, Elizabeth, and others throughout Scripture all fell victim to barrenness for a long season in their life. And God, in his miraculous, gracious power, brought them out of their barrenness, making them joyous mothers of children. That is our God. However, I don't think this verse is only addressing barren women. I think it's also addressing the barrenness of humanity without God. In Isaiah 54, the prophet writes about the nation of Israel as a whole and how they were a barren nation without the Lord. The chapter is about the Lord remaining faithful to his eternal covenant of peace with Israel. The Lord had departed from Israel for a time and they became a barren nation without the Lord. But when God returns, he promises that he will not depart, that the covenant of peace will remain with them, and the steadfast love of God will not depart from them. This is not a direct one-to-one with us today. However, it can allude to how each believer was once barren and fruitless before God's merciful, saving power intervened in their life. Each of you was once a dead, barren, fruitless person. You yielded no fruit. Yet only by the miraculous spiritual intervention in the Holy Spirit coming upon you, you became a living, fruit-bearing life. Due to original sin, we are all barren and fruitless without the Lord at work in our lives. But praise God, because he is in the business of making barren women mothers. He's in the business of lifting the poor out of the ash heap, the needy out of the dust. He's in the business of making lame things walk again. And you all know best, he's in the business of making dead things alive again. That is our God. And rightfully so, the psalm ends with how it begins. Praise the Lord. As I addressed at the beginning, there's no didactic conclusion in this psalm. The conclusion is the beginning. We start and we end with praise, just like what our days 
should look like, just like what our lives should look like. We start and we end with praise, and we must praise God for who we know him to be. We are in a world that is obsessed with feeling, acting on what we feel is right, what we feel is true, what we feel like we want to do. Alistair Begg, a popular preacher here in the U.S., uh, was giving a sermon and going on a rant about this topic of feeling, and he finishes, he concludes saying, don't ask me what I feel about myself, ask me what I know about God. We're in a world, in a nation, even a religion in the U.S. that is obsessed with feeling. So many Christian churches have fallen victim to this world of feeling good, wanting people to feel comfortable when they walk in the doors of the church, desiring to be seeker sensitive, and this is not always a bad intention. Our desire at Rua is for those who are new to church to feel welcome here, but it's our conviction as a church to never sacrifice the truth or the weight of the gospel to make someone feel comfortable. Truth becomes what people feel like it should be. as a dangerous game to play. As I've already stated once this week, marked the beginning of Pride Month, the sexual revolution is all based on feeling and not based on truth. We are amongst a world that is driven by this and is so opposite of God. It is so opposite of the Christian life. We are called to praise God for what we know of Him, for what we know of His law, His truth, His gospel. We are not permitted to shape God in what we want Him to be. He can't be God over everything but our view on sexuality. He can't be God over everything but our money. He can't be God over everything but our time and how we spend it. No. If you are to consider Him God, then you are to submit to His Lordship over everything. And we should have joy and comfort in being able to submit to the Lordship of Christ because we know about God and we know of His character and it inspires us and incites us and encourages us to praise. Now this is coming full circle from where we started. We must know God. We must know what His Word says. We must humble ourselves to Scripture and recognize that because we are sinful, we won't love every bit about the Christian faith that we are called to obey and to observe and to practice. We won't love everything because we are sinful but we can know and we can love God. We can give him praise day after day because he's excellent, because he's gracious, because of his greatness and his goodness, because he is sovereign, because he's a savior. Praise God. What a beautiful, majestic God we get to serve. There's no one like our God. He's mighty to save. He is powerful. He is merciful. He's a loving father. And what we know of God informs our praise. We are to be specific in praising the name of God. However, a major hindrance and our specific praise is a lack of specific confession of sin. If you never get specific about your confession, about your repentance, it will always limit your ability to give specific praise to God. And knowing that it is His kindness that leads us to repentance, we can specifically confess, and God will wipe our guilt clean. And then we can in turn seek who God is and specifically give him praise, calling to mind his character, his work, his redeeming power, his greatness, his excellency, excellency and his grace. There's a beautiful poem of praise um, highlighting so many specific truthful things about our God, giving a great example of what it looks like to give specific praise to God, and as well, I'll close with. Praise him for the cosmos and the picture it paints of an artist so brilliant he can scarcely be defined. Praise him. For the first time, you paused to notice the open sky and wondered what kind of imagination could inspire such beautiful things from scratch. Praise him for the scratch, for the dust held in the hands of a master craftsman, unafraid to share his likeness with those he knew would break his heart and test his patience and try his love. Praise him 
for, he, for the borrowed breath that you breathe and the faculties that function so as to remind you that you are not your own. For a love that finds its way into you every season, letting you know that you are not alone. Praise him. Remembering not to forget all his benefits, too numerous to be calculated, too heavy to be weighed on scales, too astronomical to be quantified. Praise him. For the miracles your eyes have seen, that you are too hard-hearted to believe, too nearsighted to perceive, and too self-sufficient to receive. And still somehow he met all of your needs. Praise him for broken hearts and bruised knees, for mountains brought low and valleys raised, for joy given in the deep of the night. Praise him for the night and weeping that, allows, that always expires and lasts only as long as he allows. Praise him for all that he allows, all that he permits, all that he prevents, and all that he provides, for blessing often overlooked because they're disguised. Praise him for Jesus, who brought the radiance of the sun to the tyranny of an unrelenting dark night. And before you were even awake to the light, you gloried in his light. Warned by the generosity of his love, carried from death to life on the wings of faith. Remember your name uttered in a prayer, and your heart awakened to your need for a Savior. Remember your Savior, who showed up at just the right time to show humanity that God would never turn his back on the world that he made. Praise him for the way that he came, matchless power contained in the frame of a child, in a city as obscure as they come, the giver of life filling up his very lungs with the same breath that we breathe. Show us that he is not ashamed of us. He is well acquainted with us. He is committed, no matter what the cost, to saving us. Praise him for saving us, and the cross that provided the means, the door through which we enter, and the shade under which we rest. His righteousness and not our own, his grace and his grace alone, calling us out, bringing us in, conquering death, and absolving our sin. I will say it again, praise him. In the season that you're in, for it bears the mark of his hold on your life, and when he gets a hold, and when life gets a hold of you, tempting you to forget. Lift your eyes, lift your hands, lift your heart, and praise him. Let's pray. Almighty God, it is our desire as your believers to give you praise, to know who you are, and to praise you rightly for who you are, Lord. And we are sinful, we are broken, we are wayward, and we constantly fail to do so rightly. So we confess, Lord, that we are sinners. We confess that we constantly fall short of your glory. But we desire to praise you more. We desire to live a life of praise to you. So I pray that you give us strength for this week, give us strength for this Christian life, Lord, to constantly give you praise, to confess our specific sins so we can praise you specifically, Lord. I just thank you for who you are, who you are, God, that is worthy of our praise, Lord, your matchless power, your characteristics that are not likened by anybody else, Lord. You are high above all. We give you all the glory, all the honor, all the praise. Amen.